a good learner look like? Which comes first, the learning or the engagement? How are authenticity and engagement related? How can clarity help your learners? These are some of the questions we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated, the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ann Fency, and in this episode, I speak with John Almerod, researcher, professor, and author, about how we can increase engagement to improve learning. Ready, set, activate. John Almerod is a professor of education at James Madison University and a researcher on STEM education, teacher professional development, and translating the science of learning into practice in the classroom. He is the author and co-author of several best-selling books, including The Distance Learning Playbook for College and University Instruction, Great Teaching by Design, The Success Criteria Playbook, How Learning Works, and Clarity for Learning, Five Essential Practices that Empower Students and Teachers, and that's just to name a few. John has worked in classrooms and with pre-service and practicing teachers all around the world and has worked to translate John Hattie's visible learning framework to specific disciplines and grade levels to assist teachers in implementing evidence-based practices in their classrooms. So John, welcome to our podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so let's talk first about how you define learner engagement, because there are a lot of definitions in literature. Some of it that might be too academic for like actual classroom practice, um, but you really excel at making all of this make sense in the real world. So how do you define learner engagement and how are learning and engagement different? Yeah, so there, boy, that's a great question, um, because we often equate the two, uh, yeah. and as a classroom teacher, when I taught um, high school math and science, I equated engagement with learning. If they were engaged, then they must be learning, and mm. it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, wait a second, they were engaged, but they didn't learn what I wanted them to learn, ah, what yeah. I needed them to learn, uh, what they were expected to learn in whatever the learning experience or task was for that particular day. And that's when the red light started going off in my head uh, because there would be times when they would remember other things, but not the thing. Yeah, like what? For example, if, if they were in physics and, and when I taught physics, if we were working on fluid dynamics, if we were yep. working on, on fluids, pressure, that sort of thing. And I tried to relate it to um, their cars because teenagers are really all about their cars. <laughs> and, and if I tried to do that, what I found is that they would remember the conversation and the discussion about their cars, not about pressure, volume, and temperature, or in, in, in chemistry, the viscosity of the oil and why that was such a, that, that was gone, but they remembered their cars. And so it, it, it kind of raised that question of, wait a second, what's the difference? What's the difference? Mm -hmm. The difference ended up being one of those things was uh, empowering to them. Uh, they could connect to it. Um, they were um, associated with it. And so it had a flavor. It had a set of characteristics, whereas the other information um, was a bit um, um, out of reach to them because they weren't interested. They didn't feel very connected to uh, Boyle's law and Charles law and, and fluid <laughs> dynamics, but they were much more interesting. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and so there was a clear difference in, in that 
in those outcomes because there was a clear difference in those contexts. Hmm. Um, and so that's really where this, my interest started to kind of connect. I'm like, well, something's up here. And so I know that you asked how would I define engagement? And I realized that we're going way out into left field, but I think it's important to, to get there um, through experiences that we all have likely had. If you're listening to this podcast, you can likely name a moment when you gave your students a learning task or put them in a learning experience and they remembered or they learned uh, something that was not relevant to what the learning outcomes were for that day. So you had engagement in something because you had learning in something. It just wasn't the thing. I keep going back to the thing. And so um, to answer your question, it turns out that engagement is more context driven than we had originally thought. We, we originally thought you could just define engagement as cognitive, affective, social, behavioral, and then it was in the silos. Um, yeah. What they were doing is behavioral, what they're thinking about is cognitive, right? Um, but it turns out those things do not operate in individual silos or um, you can't just blend them together like you go into an ice cream shop and say, I'll have a scoop of vanilla and a scoop of chocolate. It doesn't work that way. Um, instead, it, it requires us to think more about what does it mean to be a good learner in our classrooms? Mm -hmm. And so then how you and decide or conceptualize a good learner and how I conceptualize a good learner may be very different, but either way, that then becomes my barometer, so to speak, for engagement. If a good learner in my classroom asks questions, thinks critically, challenges ideas, uh, consolidates their thinking, all those things, right, um, helps out classmates, uh, shows a passion, right, once we define what a good learner looks like in our classroom, then it's up to us to create learning experiences and build capacity in our learners to do those things. Mm. So what's my answer to your question? Um, the old model of engagement was what you think about, how you feel, and what you do. Mm -hmm. The new model is not that, um, because it turns out they could fool us. They could sit there, and, and I'm getting ready to tie this back to physics. They could work in their groups. They could answer the questions on the lab sheet. They could complete the lab or the task, but not think about anything they were doing. So they could play school, so to speak. Yeah. Yep. And so all of a sudden, but they were behaviorally engaged uh, and they looked like they were having a good time and they answered the questions on the handout. Mm -hmm. So I hit cognitive, behavioral and affective, but yet I had no learning. Mm, yeah. So there's a problem here. Yep. Um, and so then how do we think about engagement now? away from the silo, exactly as we've talked about already. What makes a good learner in our classroom? And then how do we set up the structures, the interactions and the learning experiences to bring that out in our learners? Mm -hmm. That's what we're after. But the goal of course is engagement is defined as learners who take ownership of their learning, drive the learning process and know what to do when they don't know what to do and we're no longer their teachers. Mm. Okay. Long-term outcomes. Absolutely. Long-term outcomes, but steps that we can put in along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can put in along the way. Yep. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm interested, like you, you were saying like our ideal student and what does that engagement look like? So um, we don't have an ideal student, right. we, you know, we, and like, I, I always 
struggle when I work with faculty to get them away from that idea of like the average student. So how do how do different ways of engaging look like? Like if you because sometimes asking questions might not be the way like a student might, you know, either have anxiety or maybe they're they're an internal processor and it takes them a while to come up with their questions. So what are other ways that they might actually be engaged, but we don't see it the way that we typically think of? I love that question because using the term ideal student often is a trigger for some of us um, because it, 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 it there's an implication there that we're imposing our norms on learners that may not have the same background, cultural uh, experiences and interactions that we do. And, and certainly, but so there's a bit of a, um, a of a implied hierarchy there, power structure there. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to go after that. When I say, and, and when you and I in conversation talk about the ideal student, we can still say out loud that a good learner in my classroom asks questions, but to foster, nurture, and sustain that engagement requires me as the teacher to make adjustments, whether it's mm -hmm. scaffolds, whether it's adaptations, that are based on that local context. Let me give you an example. If I want my learners to ask questions, I have to recognize not everyone's going to be at the same level of comfort or level of readiness for asking questions. And so then that's when my expertise as a teacher, your expertise as a teacher, those of you that are listening to the podcast, your expertise as a teacher, on how to scaffold question asking in the classroom and build that capacity in learners. So I can do it lots of different ways. I may have learners that are that love to ask questions and they dominate the conversation. Yeah. There are strategies to put in place to slow them down a bit. <laughs> I may have learners and we all know what they are, right? Uh, <laughs> I may have learners that are, are, are not comfortable with that. And so I can put in things like using Mentimeter or having use turn and talks. Um, I can have them use uh, Jamboard. Uh, I can use Padlets that are anonymous. So I can put in strategies and techniques that allow them the same equity of access and opportunity that someone who likes to talk out loud has as well. And yeah. so it requires me as a teacher to move away from one way of asking questions and diversify my toolkit for getting students to ask questions using yeah. cognitive structures from say project um, uh, Project Zero out of Harvard has all kinds of thinking structures that are excellent resources. Um, it requires me to use instructional technology. Uh, it may require cooperative learning structures so that they're asking questions of a peer, but not of the whole class. Mm -hmm. And so we can still say a good learner asks questions, but it's my responsibility as the teacher then to create an environment so that there's equity of access and opportunity for all learners to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. So it brings us to the second part of engagement. Engagement is when all students are valued members of the community and are actively engaged in what's happening in that community and have the opportunity to succeed in that community. And so there's an inclusive nature to that definition above and beyond um, good questioning. Yeah, yeah. So like questioning itself really does lead to learning like it's a way of engaging cognitively with content but we we need to get away from just that idea of the student you know throwing out questions in the middle of class that that's only one way to question right and and that's where our 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 role as inclusive educators really steps in yeah 
how do I move again? And I'm going to say this again. I don't mean to be redundant with it, but there are lots of different ways to ask a question. There are lots of different ways to get kids to summarize or learners to summarize. I don't, I'm sorry. They're not goats. I don't mean to use kids, but get learners to summarize, um, to get learners to, uh, self-reflect. That's where we as professionals need to build our toolkit and capacity to support that inclusive nature. And so, moving away from the siloed approach to engagement to a more uh, context-based engagement Mm -hmm. also gives us the professional autonomy to to decide how that's going to show up in our classrooms. That's that's the power of of this, but it it should focus on, and I'm going to pull from um, some new work from Dennis Shirley and Andy Hargraves. Uh, They have a new book out on uh, the five pathways to engagement, and one of the things they zero in on are the, the barriers to engagement. Um, and they list them off. Uh, disenchantment is one of theirs, uh, that students experience a certain type of learning in the early years. Mm-hmm. But then when they walk into secondary social studies, it's sit and get. And so yeah. they become very disenchanted with how they were treated as a learner over there in, in early childhood and how they're treated as a learner now in seventh grade. Yep. So disenchantment. Another one is uh, disconnected, where they see no connection to the learning, and it's very dehumanized. It's very test-based. It's very machine, uh, warehouse, uh, factory-based, and so they don't really feel like there's any value in in the humanity of being in the classroom. And there are lots of folks. Uh, Paul France is one of them who does a lot of work on personalized or humanized learning to get over that disenchantment or disconnectedness. Others disassociated where we don't do a very good job of making our classrooms inviting mm-hmm. uh, because of bullying or because of um, using ability grouping or uh, not taking students' interest into account. And so they feel disassociated from the learning. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not a sense of belonging. Um, the other one is uh, disempowerment. This is one of my favorite disses, so to speak. The <laughs> learner has no autonomy. Uh, they don't get to choose how they ask questions. There's only one way. It's the tongue to press out of the jar. And so they're like, wait, I, I, I don't have any autonomy in deciding how I want to approach this. You're going to make me speak out loud when I'm not comfortable yet. And so there's this disempowering. And then finally, there's the distraction where we got so much going on. <laughs> and so all of this plays out um, in, in the engagement picture. Um, so it's a complicated situation um, if you just treat it as they either are engaged or they aren't. Then we yeah. miss all of these nuances. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm interested to hear, like you've, you've just worked with so many different teachers and administrators in different kinds of school settings, age levels, subject areas, all that stuff. What, what are some kinds of misconceptions people have about engagement? And like when you work with them, what do they find to be the most surprising? Like, the oh, the ahas. Uh, one of my favorite misconceptions, um, because I fell for it hook, line, and sinker as a science teacher, um, you know, demonstrations. Let's blow something up, right? Um, <laughs> this myth that, that in order to have engagement, you have to have fun. Mm. Um, in order to have engagement, you have to have a three-ring circus in your classroom. Uh, huge misconception. Yeah. Huge misconception. Um, last evening, um, my children um, who are in who who participate in karate, um, they weren't eligible to test for their next belt, but they wanted to go watch the other students in their class test mm-hmm. for their next belt. And I found it fascinating that you had sixty young children 
engaged with one individual administering the, the test, there wasn't a lot of fun there. I mean, they were doing push-ups, sit-ups, they were doing kicks, they were doing katas, they were doing all these mm -hmm. things. It, it wasn't the same as playing a video game or playing basketball at the local YMCA, but they were engaged. Mm. So, so we've got to get past the fun problem. Yeah. Uh, the second one that is, is rough um, is that we often assume the learning has to be relevant to their lives. Mm -hmm. That's not true either. Um, because we often find ourselves engaged in something that isn't really relevant to our lives, but it does need to be somewhat authentic. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another myth. Engagement and relevance must go together. No. If you thumb through the pre-K through 12 curriculum, there's a lot in there that is not relevant to their lives, but yet yeah. students find it engaging because they're fascinated by the pyramids. Uh, yeah. They're fascinated by uh, short stories in language arts. They're fascinated by uh, the structure of the atom. They're fascinated by certain artists and art history. But in and of themselves, that's not what they're going to do. They may grow up and be incredibly successful and contribute to society raking blueberries. Yeah. Ta-da! But they still find social studies incredibly riveting and in their spare time, read historical fiction. So it doesn't have to be relevant. Uh, the last one, of course, is technology. Um, we always default to, oh, I can't get them to pay attention. Well, let me get out some technology. It's incredible to watch a group of learners take a cardboard box and crayons and entertain themselves for hours. Yep. So th those are the myths. Uh, the last one, and then I'll pause because I know I, I, can, I can talk about this forever. Uh, the last one, the one that is often the most surprising to people is that learning precedes engagement, not the other way around. Mm. So we often assume I have to engage you first and then you'll learn. It turns out we're more inclined to engage when we realize I just learned something and there seems to be a gap and I'd like to close that gap. Mm. And so learning precedes engagement. Yeah, and I've heard... Uh, I've seen seen some studies about the same thing with motivation, that people are always trying to talk about get motivated first and then learn, when in fact, a lot of times when you're learning, then you get motivated to learn more. Yes. And, and that's, so that's hard for people to comprehend because we only reflect on it after it's happened. Yeah. Right. So, so that's that's the challenge of being a Monday morning quarterback, so to speak. And I, and I don't need to use a sports analogy, although I've referred to raking blueberries. So it's good to throw <laughs> it in there. Um, and if you're not from Maine and listening to this podcast, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but I do. <laughs> it, uh, but it, it's it, because we often reflect on it after it's happened. Mm -hmm. And we only remember the oh, that story was so interesting. I just loved it. We talk about the engagement. We talk about the motivation when we share it with others. What we don't talk about is, you know, I read the first page of that book and I learned six different things that I did not even consider. And I, after that, I couldn't put it down. No one ever says that. Yeah. No, no one ever says that. And so that's part of the reason we, we don't reflect well on our own learning. We leave out parts that we missed consciously. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a challenge. So my, my advice is, as a, and I use this advice in my own classes um, here at JMU and when I'm working with learners, the first thing I want to do is I want to, in the first couple of minutes I am ever with them, I want to teach them something that makes them go, wait, what? And then, <laughs> bang, then we got it. Yeah. Versus, 
okay, everybody up. We're going we're gonna to play a game to get to know each other and engage you. That You can almost hear the eyes roll. There's a reason. There's a reason for that, right? Nobody likes the word icebreaker. Do you, Ian? No. Yeah, no, but, it, but you can get groups of, of folks to love icebreakers if you just don't call it that and give them a reason that they need to break the ice. That's the learning. Then mm. comes the engagement. Then comes the motivation. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So um, speaking of of those kinds of getting up and moving around, I, I did that in one of your sessions at Learning the Brain, which is like my favorite conference in the world. Um, and so I was I was really interested in you were talking about authenticity and clarity. Like I hadn't really considered those in terms of engagement before. So can you talk a little bit about what are authenticity and clarity and how are they related to learner engagement? So um, clarity is really simply, um, is the learning clear to the student, which means it also has to be clear to the teacher. So clarity is all about how we organize our classrooms, the, the examples we use, the explanations we provide. Um, that's, that's the clarity piece. And it is exactly um, what it says it is. Authenticity is fascinating, and, and I, I love having this conversation because, again, I fell for, the tra for this trap. What many may not appreciate on the other side of this podcast is that most of what I study in my role and most of what I work on professionally are the very things that I screwed up royally as a teacher. Because it, 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 me, too. It, me too. I, I do that, too. <laughs> So, so it was like, oh, well, you must have been great in the class. No, I was awful. That's why I study how to implement things in the classroom, because I realized I'm terrible. I need to understand this better. Yeah. So, so authenticity I fell for. So real world examples. When we talk about real world, um, again, the curriculum often does not relate to their lives. Mm -hmm. And number two, and this is a, a bit heavy, um, and that is we may not want the real world their real world in our classroom, and they may not want it either. Mm -hmm. If they are at home and they have no idea where their next meal is coming from, they are in an abusive situation, um, they are, their life circumstances are such that their only safe place includes the six hours they spend with you. Mm -hmm. Us trying to pull the real world into the classroom, number one is a lie because it probably doesn't relate. And number two, it may bring some of that social emotional aspect to our classroom when they're trying to keep them separate. Mm. Now, that's a very uh, extreme example, but it mm. is just one example. Um, the other thing is it's not sustainable. My God. If I had to find a real world connection to everything I taught, for every student in the classroom, think about that. Think about those that those of us that teach a hundred students a day. Mm -hmm. You have to know all hundred of their interests, and then before you introduce the topic of fractions, I now have to go through and take fractions and present it one hundred different ways so that everyone in the room can say, "Oh, well, he made it connect to my life." <laughs> Are you kidding me? That is a completely unsustainable practice, and the research never said that. Yeah. That was, there's an example of misinterpreting research. So you have two issues. Number one, you may not want their real world in the classroom, just like we don't want our real world in, in our class, let's be honest, right? And number two, it's just not sustainable. 
And so what does the research say? Uh, the research says authenticity is really what we're after. It doesn't have to relate to your life, but it has to relate to somebody's. Mm. So I might teach fractions by putting them in an experience that requires them to convert different measurements mm -hmm. in cooking or constructing a house. Um, I might put them in a situation where they get to be paleontologists for the day and dig up fossils to study structural adaptations. And so that day they pretend to be a paleontologist. Mm -hmm. Maybe I teach informative writing by having them take on the role of a journalist. So I'm not asking if they're going to be journalists, but I'm showing them how this could be used in the real world. But I'm not asking them to make it their real world or trying to convince them to be a journalist. The added side effect of that is really simple. You can't be what you can't see. And so you may have that learner that had no idea this is what a journalist did, or that student that had no idea this is what a paleontologist did. And so in addition to giving them that authentic experience, you may take a spark and turn it into a flame. They just had never seen it before. So they didn't know that that's what they wanted to be. So there's even a side effect that is positive there. So that's the difference, clarity and then authenticity. And they go together because in order for me to make something authentic, I have to be very clear about what it is I want them to learn mm -hmm. or they'll pay more attention to their car or they'll pay more attention to other details because I missed the point of the learning and chose real world and not authenticity. Mm, yeah. So it's really about context, which is something that's always bothered me about um, formal schooling is that we begin with the abstract and then we start giving examples in, in context when how we naturally learn in the real world is that we have a whole bunch of experiences and then we draw out the similarities and differences and we kind of create those those rules in our mind and we abstract from our experiences so why does school does it do it the opposite Wow. So that's a, that, so, you, so that's a tough question. Um, I, oh, oh, now you go get me given all kinds of opinions. Um, because what I want to say is, is that the reason school does it differently is because of the model of schooling in the United States. Yeah. yeah. Um, the way our, and, and I, and let me just say up front, I'm a standards based, I'm a standards based guy. And so I'm good with standards. I think standards tell us what to teach, but they don't tell us how. And that's yeah. why most of my work is focused on how. Like when, when people say, well, you know, standards are not good because they killed my creativity. Um, no, you probably weren't creative before. The standards just gave you an excuse, right? Because it doesn't tell me that I have to teach about ancient China with a packet. It just says I have to teach ancient China. I get to decide the how. And, and so I think in many ways, because of the standards-based movement, we've, we've gotten into this lockstep way of teaching. Um, and we often feel like, well, if they don't know the basics, let me do the base, I mean, right? Let me, do, let me do it in a way that seems to make sense. Um, what the research has continued to show us is we need the experience before the label. Mm. Um, and so I think some of it is just part of that myth of what learning looks like and how learning works, which is one of the reasons why uh, Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry and I have spent so much time recently on unpacking how learning works. Mm. It's often driven by our misconceptions about learning. And when I say our misconceptions, guilty as charged. Yeah. Because when I taught math, I taught it the way you just described knowing good and well now that that probably wasn't the order that should have been done. And so in other my answer to that question is don't, we shouldn't beat ourselves up over it. Mm 
yeah. because the system is set up to go that direction. And we have to consciously make decisions to move away from that direction. Mm, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's an, it's an uphill battle, but there are, you know, there are just so many educators out there that care and, you know, yes. are really trying to do the right thing. And it's exciting when we can give them that knowledge and those tools to, to help them do that. Yeah. And I do, I do have to say, you taught me a word in there too. Um, unicity. Oh. I love that word. Mm-hmm. So you said that basically do students feel like they care about you and, or you care about them and that you're trying to help them learn? Yeah. So that came from a 2016 study uh, that looked at um, authenticity through a different lens. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's a different way to think about authenticity. Um, Authenticity in that particular study looked at um, being authentic with our students. In other words, um, I, I don't like to use the word to define it, but to be sincere in our interactions and how we set up and run our classrooms. Um, In other words, the idea of fake it till you make it doesn't work because students perceive us as either authentic teachers or inauthentic teachers, and it influences how they respond to us and influences their learning outcomes. So in in authentic, Mm -hmm. I'm an authentic teacher. Um, By the way, there's no way I can decide to be an authentic teacher. It's all based on learner perception, which just drives me nuts. (laughs) Because if the learner perceives that I'm inauthentic, it's over with. Yeah. So um, unicity is one of the contributors to authenticity and unicity is this. Do the students perceive that their interactions with you are um, personalized and unique? In other words, the student doesn't go, he says that to everybody, but instead the learner feels as if you value them as an individual and weave that into your conversation with them. They feel like they've had a unique experience with you and shared a moment with you or shared time with you that others may get something similar to, but do not replicate. Mm, Yeah. And you can actually do some of that at scale. Like a lot of times LMSs will let you plop in field, like plop in their name into a message and stuff like that, that, you know, it does give some of that, you know, more personalized feel and, you know, like having banks of comments that you frequently give to students instead of having to, you know, yeah. completely original feedback every single time that you you assess assignments, you know, giving, you know, copying and pasting some of that, you know, really, it gives the student that sense that you're really paying attention to them and their work, but it also is saving you some of the time that, you know, you can't possibly do it for every student all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I'm always careful when I say unicity, because I don't want to imply that, that you have to have something unique to say on every student's paper. That's not what that means. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that if these six students made this need the same type of feedback that I can't say, all right, you know, hey, I looked at your papers. All of you seem to struggle with subject verb agreement and we need to do some editing there. And so on your papers, I put a sticky note that just said subject verb agreement. What I'd like to do is talk to you now about ways to revise it. So the unicity comes in the follow-up, but Mm -hmm. saying subject verb agreement subject to six learners, that doesn't kill the unicity. That's called efficiency, right? I mean, so, so, there, yeah. so, but the unicity is where we go next after the feedback. 
Um, where unicity would be a problem is if every student got a sticker and it was check plus good job, check plus good job, and they all got that. Yeah. Well, now it's like, well, there's 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 nothing here. So this really isn't authentic feedback. Or every student I see, every student that sees him, they he asks them the same question. That's going to start to mess with it. Um, they're going to you're going to start to be the the topic of conversations at lunch. What what did he say? Oh, he said the same thing to me. Yeah. <laughs> so now I have three questions that I ask all of our guests. So okay. the first one is, what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you have experienced? I'm going to give you an answer that might surprise you. Yeah. Um, the biggest barrier to learner engagement that I've experienced is me. <laughs> um, yeah. How so? um, there are times when um, I try to use the same strategy year in and year out and push through even even though I know that's a different group of learners or mm -hmm. I get so busy with other things that I forget to think about um, my individuals or the individuals in this class, mm -hmm. this semester or this year. And I just try to replicate what worked the year before um, or I forget to put myself in their shoes and view it only from my angle. And so I tend to be the biggest barrier to the student engagement in my classroom because I don't put the who before the do. Um, I don't put who's in my room before what I do as a teacher and I catch it. I'll catch them like, oh, you know what? I just tried to copy and paste that from last semester and this group's not having it. So who's, who is that? Well, that's me, mm. right? Um, because I find if I put myself in their shoes I tend to get away from that and go, wait a second. I don't think that's going to work with this group. Or, you know what? That didn't work with last year's group. I'm going to try it again because this year's group seems to fill in the blank. Hmm. So that's probably not the answer you wanted. And it's a bit metacognitive. And so I hope the eye rolling on the other side of this podcast isn't too <laughs> intense. Uh, but I, yeah, that's my final answer. I think because if you look at the the the, the five things that, that Shirley and Hargraves point out, a lot of those come from us, mm. not from the, well, you know, kids these days, what do you mean kids these days? I, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. What do you mean kids these days? I, I mean, that, 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 so it's gotta be me. It's gotta be me. Hmm. That's a really interesting perspective. And I like the who before the do, you know, because it, it really, it focuses the learner, you know, that, 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 that each student is their own unique learner with their own needs and challenges. And it also emphasizes the challenge of being an educator that you, you know, there's all this great, you know, research and advice and everything online, but you can't just plug and play. Like you, part of the challenge of being an educator is really understanding your learners and the context and then using you know, the most appropriate strategy at the right time. And right. Holy cow, is that a lot of work? Yeah. And, and, but so I would argue, and, and maybe this is a conversation for a different, it is a lot of work, but there are ways that we can be smart about this. Um, and it all goes back to clarity. So working smarter, not harder. Here's what I mean by that. I think clarity is the hinge point. Um, and, and you may not be surprised for me to say that, but clarity is the hinge point here. Because if I sit down and map out my learning intention and my success criteria, and I know the verbs, the verbs that are in my success criteria, 
-hmm. That tells me everything I need to know. If it says, I, by the end of the day, if I want my students to explain, I can explain, then that verb explain should tell me in my whole, and, and I know on the podcast, you can't see me gesturing, but I'm pointing to all the junk in my room, in my office. Then it tells me that I can ignore all of those strategies and only go to those strategies because those strategies help learners explain. Mm. And those don't. Those help them analyze and sort and help them uh, compare and contrast, right? So it actually helps me narrow my focus, narrow my focus down to just those strategies that explain, and it helps me avoid those that don't. And so in some ways, I'm becoming more efficient in my thinking, because then when I do compare and contrast, I'm not going to look at explaining strategies. I'm going to look over here. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, it reduces our solution space, our strategy space, and it may actually make it easier because I know what I'm looking for now versus just pulling out strategies from behind my ears to try to keep them entertained. So I've moved away from entertainment and engagement to learning that leads to engagement. Oh my God. I'm going to take this clip and I'm going to play it for my students because, <laughs> you know, I heart so much on how important it is to develop your learning objectives, you know, that it's not just, I want them to learn this thing. Well, no, what is it that you actually want them to do? You know, and you just captured that so perfectly. Do you want them to explain this? Do you want them to compare and contrast it? Do you want them to apply it in this situation? You know, once you can do that, then it makes the rest of the instructional decisions so much easier. I think, I, I think that's the secret. I think sometimes we work harder and not smarter because we're trying to entertain and, but that's not our, I'm not saying that's our fault because we try to entertain because we're trying to keep up with learners that don't see the world the way we do and have experiences very different from us. And we haven't stopped to say, wait a second, wait a second. I can cut out all of this guessing and checking with engagement. If I just stop from it and say, what is the clarity of the learning now who is coming in the room? and go right to that versus, okay, well, I could try this, I could try this, I could stop, 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 stop. If we're into that, uh, and I'm going to pull a quote from, from uh, Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry, if I'm doing that, I'm teaching by chance, not design. The whole idea of this is you want to teach by design. Mm. Yes, that's, that's a great way to put it. So now my next question is about the future. What should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that isn't fully being addressed yet? I would say, actually, to be quite honest, I would say, how do we personalize this? Mm -hmm. um, not individualize, but how, how do we, we need to start having the conversation um, around the personalization. And here's what I mean by that. How do we, how do we weave this in with some of the social, emotional, and affective aspects? Mm -hmm. We need to be having more conversations about that. We try, but we think of it as deficit thinking. We go to conferences on students who are, who have experienced trauma and aren't doing well. Deficit thinking. Yep. Uh, students who learn differently. Deficit thinking. Yep. Uh, students who aren't succeeding. Deficit thinking. Uh, you have attendance problem? Come to this conference. We'll change your attendance. Deficit thinking. It, it's all it's assuming there's something wrong with the with the learner, and there mm -hmm. may there may be challenges for that learner. But it doesn't mean they can't learn. And it doesn't mean we can't. So I think the deficit thinking is just going to eat us up. It's going to mm. eat us up if we don't get a hold of it. That yep. there's something wrong with them and we have to fix it. That's a problem. Versus, okay, that didn't seem to engage them. What is another? And again, 
to steal from Shirley and Hargraves, what's another path to engagement for that child? Yeah. Not that there's something wrong. I need to fix the child. And if they, if I fix the child, then they'll come through my path. Whoa, 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 whoa. Versus let me learn who that student is and then come up with a different path for engaging it. Mm. Oh, I love that. Cause that's one of the things that I love about post-structuralism, which just totally blew my mind when I first learned about it. <laughs> Cause I, I couldn't get my brain to work in that way, but it's, not like asking what's wrong in this this situation or this person, but what's wrong with the system? Let's pull apart the system and figure out what is not working here that we could change in the system to you know affect changes at the at the smaller level. Yep. Yeah. So yep. <laughs> as we wrap up, my final question is: what is the one thing you want people to remember from this conversation about learner engagement? I would say, you know what, I'm going to go with the who before the do. Mm. Um, you, we can't engage learners we don't know. Yeah. Um, which also means we can't engage learners assuming they were like us when we were learners because they're not. Um, they're not. We chose to be teachers. So there's something weird and unique about us anyway. Yes, so, exactly. So, <laughs> so I would say the who before the do. You can't do any of this until you can figure out who's sitting in those seats. And it doesn't mean you have to adopt them. And it doesn't mean you have to break down boundaries, but you got to know who's in the room. Mm. You got to know who's in the room. Yeah. And that, that's such a good point about, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, because I, I work in higher education and, you know, a lot of faculty don't receive training on how to teach. They yeah. just go into their lecture halls and teach the way yep. they were taught. They were taught. Yep. And, you know, I'm trying to explain that to them that you're here because it worked for you. What about all of those other students that didn't become faculty in physics or whatever the, the case may be? You know, how do we how do we teach them so that they can learn too? And here's the best part. If you interviewed any of those folks, my guess is, my guess is, I'd be willing to bet, they made it not because of the lecturer, but because of the strategies they used outside of class, mm. which means they found their own path to engagement. Mm. Yep. So now how do we do that for everybody? And the answer is move away from this cognitive affective behavioral model and move into this student just driving their learning. Um, and that came from an Amy Berry study in 2020, the concept of driving their learning and build capacity on learners to do that. What you just said is actually the whole point. The reason you survive college on lectures is because you find a different path to engagement outside of that lecture hall. Yes. That's what we got to build in our, our pre-K through 12 learners. Mm, yes. That's it. Perfect. Yes. Oh, we solved the world's crises. <laughs> Done. Done. Well, John, thank you so much for this awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's it, This was great. It made me think you asked some hard questions, and then it gave me a chance to uh, to just get it all out of my system. My wife and kids get tired of me talking about shops. So when they know I get to talk to somebody else, they hope that it releases enough pressure that keeps them out of, uh, out of the targeted spotlight later on this evening. Yeah. So you can talk about real world stuff with them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'll talk with you about this stuff anytime. <laughs> Excellent. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Learner Engagement Activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ian Fency with sound editing and production by Ian Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org 
and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at AECT.org.